Hello. Today on How to Be a Human Being, we're talking about anxiety with Ash. Ash is a licensed therapist in North Carolina. We had an excellent conversation about what anxiety is and some tools you can use to make life a little easier. You can find Ash at ashtreecc.com or on her podcast, I Married Your Therapist. Let's get to the episode. My name is Ash Baker, and I am a licensed therapist. And where do you work out of currently? I practice in North Carolina. I see clients virtually, so I see people all across the state. So Ash, what got you into being a therapist? I wanted to help people for as long as I can remember. My mom was a nurse when I was growing up. I knew the medical field probably wasn't for me, but I loved that. People were constantly reaching out to my mom for support. And she was just somebody who I saw as like always being so helpful and kind and loving toward other people. And I really liked that. And then when I was in high school and college, there were a lot of mental health issues that were going on in my family. And so I was watching up close and personal what it can look like to go through those things and to not have proper support. And I loved psychology. I was really into those classes. And I thought this is something that I can do. This can be my spot to get to kind of fill that gap. I'm from a really small town and there were no therapists anywhere nearby. And obviously growing up, therapy wasn't something that people did. It was for people who like had huge issues. (laughs) It didn't seem like it was something that was accessible for most people. So I loved those things. Right out of college, undergrad, I started working in the front office of a counseling center. I loved everything about that. And so then a few years later, we moved around a little bit. And when we ended up back in North Carolina, I got to go to grad school and become a therapist. That's awesome. How long have you been a licensed therapist? I have been a licensed therapist for going on two years now. And in the last year of the counseling program, you spend that year with clients. So almost in my third year. The reason I wanted to have you on today was to talk a little bit about anxiety. Um, This was actually a request from a listener. And after they listened to the second episode, they were like, hey, Kyle, can you have somebody on and talk about anxiety and where it comes from and how it exists? So I kind of want to get into that. I love talking with people about anxiety. I have personally had anxiety my whole life. (laughs) So it hits really close to home. It's something that for a long time controlled my life. And that's often where people find themselves when they're in counseling, that maybe they've noticed it before, maybe they haven't, but it's come to a point where it feels like their anxiety runs their life. And that can be such an isolating and difficult place to be. So I love talking about it. I'm glad we're getting to cover that today. Me too. It's it's really exciting. So the first question, where does anxiety come from? Something that I love sharing about anxiety is that it's actually a very adaptive response. It's a really important biological function that we have. So when you're experiencing anxiety, you're actually experiencing the activation of your fight-flight response, which a lot of people have heard about. And that is a response to essentially trauma, but to anything that's a threat. So it has these biological underpinnings, which are great for us. It's so important that we have an anxiety response to things. So when there's something in your environment and your amygdala is the part of your brain that's 
assessing your environment for threat. When it starts to notice that there might be something going on, your amygdala will start to send your brain and your body into that fight or flight response. And that's going to get your sympathetic nervous system going, which is going to kick off adrenaline. It's going to get your heart pumping and you're going to start feeling like you need to run or you need to fight. And that's all of that activation that you've got going on when you've got anxiety. That's extremely useful when you're in a situation where you're actually up against a threat. I talk to clients about, you know, imagining that they're out and there's a, there's a lion because that's kind of where that response comes from, comes from. You sense a lion and all of these systems engage, you're ready to run and then you do run or you do fight and then the threat is gone. And now you get to celebrate that you survived and you go back to your people and you're excited and you celebrate that you like lived through this terrible thing, but then it's over. The tough thing is that in a modern world, our anxiety isn't over in the same way. Our threats aren't the same. You can move from having that momentary response in a moment where something is going on to feeling like you're living under that threat all of the time that's an excruciatingly hard thing for our body to undergo. It is not meant to stay in that activated response all of the time. It's exhausting. Obviously, like you said, we don't really have lions chasing us around today. Right. But what could some of those lions be that maybe people don't know about? It might be that earlier in your life, you were in an environment that was somehow threatening to you. And it doesn't have to be that your parents were actively doing something harmful, but if they just weren't meeting your needs appropriately, you know, when we're little, our parents are the thing that we need for survival. We are completely dependent on our caretakers just to be able to live, to be able to grow up. And so if they're not meeting our needs appropriately, if they aren't there for us, or we're perceiving that they aren't there for us in some way, that'll start to activate that response because we need them to live. When you're experiencing things later in life that remind you of something like that, you start to think maybe people aren't going to be there for me. Maybe the people in my life who I hope are going to be around or who I care about aren't going to show up for me in the ways that I need. That's less of a survival issue because now you're an adult and you have autonomy. You don't need those people for survival, but it's going to remind your brain. It's going to trigger that amygdala response this feels like that same situation where I thought I wasn't going to have food and shelter that I relied on my parents for. Now, sometimes people don't develop anxiety until adulthood. And that can be after a relationship that can be after going through something scary, like experiencing a car accident, or it can just be, you know, there's something off in our environment. There's a lot of pressure from work and we start to worry we won't be able to keep up. We start, you know, we have an incident in school. I worked with somebody who had never experienced anxiety and then they got sick at one point in college and suddenly they fell behind for the first time in classes. And after that, anxiety always followed them because they felt like, what if that could happen again? It was so easy when I encountered that it could come out of anywhere that something just throws my life out of whack. Yes, you said a couple things there that I really love. And that's that one way that anxiety might have shown up in our life is our childhood needs weren't met, whether that was safety or food, but something in our past experience stayed with us into adulthood. And then the second part is the adulthood traumas. And, you know, 
some of those are you know, big T traumas that are really, you know, big deals. And some of those are kind of what I like to call the little T traumas, right? Mm-hmm. That are like you lost your job or, you know, you ended a relationship with somebody who you felt safe around. Yeah, absolutely. Are those the only kind of two places generally this anxiety can come from is just something feeling a threat, whether that was in the past or maybe in the present? Anxiety can develop in so many different ways. Often it is one of those kind of big T or little T events. And the important thing for people to keep in mind is that those big T traumas are kind of those headline traumas, the big deal things that we could, that we like think about reading about somewhere, (laughs) like something absolutely horrible and nameable happened. But our body doesn't respond differently to a little T trauma that we wouldn't like put in a headline. That if you just consistently don't have something you need, that thing is going to activate your body in exactly the same way. And that trauma has to do with our response to an event and not to the event itself and the nameability of that event. Anxiety certainly tends to have patterns in families. I think that there are some people who just tend to have more of a disposition to that. They already are sort of very detail-oriented and worry about keeping up with things. So they're more prone to be in a situation where they're worried about falling behind. A lot of times people have no idea where their anxiety comes from. And we tend to be able to trace it back to some sort of ongoing kind of little T trauma, that unnameable sort of thing. But I don't think it has to be a trauma event specifically. In fact, we know that anxiety can occur in the reverse, that it's not just that we have an activating event and then our heart starts racing and those things start happening. But sometimes it can happen in reverse where we're experiencing those symptoms and our body reads that as anxiety. You know, it might occur around a health issue and that sort of thing. That is one thing I've never thought about is it occurring around a health issue. A lot of people have concerns around that or they'll have those symptoms crop up for the first time and then they kind of learn that as anxiety and then it feels ongoing. I can think like off the top of my head, a a cancer patient that's been healthy their whole life that just goes to the doctor one day that could have just, oh, now I have this health problem and now I'm anxious. Exactly. Exactly. And especially how suddenly those things occur you know, it's this huge before and after sort of effect where one day the world feels this way. And then the next day you live in a world where you can feel fine and go to the doctor and have cancer. And so there are a lot of events like that, that'll cause that adulthood onset anxiety. I kind of want to shift gears just a little bit, hopefully chit chat about the relationship between anxiety and fear. Is it the same thing or how do they differ? Well, the thing that I'm drawn to is that there's a good chance that you can experience one without the other. So a fear-inducing situation is sort of that thing that's inducing exactly our need for anxiety, that biological underpinning. We're in a scary situation. That fight or flight kicks in. We deal with the threat or we get away from it. And if we have a good support system, and we're able to kind of form that event into part of our narrative and move forward and really feel that it's in the past, we won't develop lifelong anxiety. So you can have fear isolated from any sort of ongoing anxiety. You have the fight or flight response, but then nothing in the future. And the other thing is that a lot of people who deal with anxiety for a long time 
might stop noticing the fear attached with it. I think it is a similar feeling, that heart racing. But again, our bodies are not meant to stay in anxiety. And when we're in anxiety for a really long time, it kind of can lead to like a shutdown and a numbing and a dissociating from that thing. And so I would, I would think in that situation, and certainly in my own experience, I stopped experiencing the fear associated with that. And anxiety was more of a way of life at that point. Yeah. So would you say fear is kind of a more in the moment feeling, whereas anxiety is looking forward and saying that fear could happen again? I like that. I think that that's a very good way to put it, because exactly what anxiety does is takes us out of the moment. When we're dealing with fear, we're dealing with something that's happening right then. And certainly a feeling of fear about what could happen is part of anxiety, but anxiety is always about the past or about the future. A lot of how we deal with coping with anxiety is drawing ourselves into the present where we're safe and okay, because yep, anxiety is linked to taking us out of that present moment. I think that's a good way to put it. So we've talked about, you know, what it is, where it comes from. And now the big part and kind of the main focus of this podcast is how do we deal with it? Anxiety can be really tricky to deal with, especially that sort of lifelong anxiety, specifically because people befriend their anxiety, that anxiety feels like the thing that keeps them safe. And they worry that if they let go of that anxiety, that they'll let go of the thing that's been protecting them. The fact that they're constantly on guard and on high alert for what could go wrong feels like the only thing standing in the way of, you know, certain disaster. It can be a tough thing to want to let go of, but we tend to do a couple of things. So one of those will be talking about how anxiety has been helpful because without acknowledging that, we're not going to be willing to move forward and consider giving it up in general. (laughs) So we'll talk about how anxiety has been useful. We'll talk about identifying certain underlying sources of anxiety. I love talking about the biological underpinnings so that we understand where anxiety comes from and why it's a help to us and what it's doing in its best state and why it's no longer working when it's activated all of the time. But then a lot of the healing takes place around things like mindfulness, things around being able to speak back to that anxiety and things that bring us into the into the present. I've never really had to deal with any major anxiety in my life, just a little bit here and there around, you know, sometimes anxiety can be confused with excitement. Sure. Yes. Um, so that's really the only anxiety that I've had is like really more of the excitement for a big my life. But you said something earlier that people befriend their anxiety. Mm-hmm. And that stuck out to me because labels are a huge thing that I've noticed in my life is that in the past, people have labeled me different things. And I can imagine being labeled as someone with anxiety could be comforting to people. Yeah. Have you seen that? I don't know. I think that that's a really interesting question. I see at least getting to have a label being a relieving thing because living with something that's unnamed is so difficult to do. There can be a lot of relief in having that thing named and normalized. There are so many people who live with anxiety. Oftentimes, in fact, when people are coming in to counseling and they have anxiety and they're wanting to deal with that, they're 
hope is that they are going to get down to a place where they have zero anxiety. And that's one of the reasons we're talking about how adaptive anxiety is. And so then there is that falling into the comfort of there are so many people who do live with anxiety and it is something that you can do and you can be somebody who lives with anxiety, but isn't haunted by it, who isn't, whose life isn't run by it. So those things are certainly comforting. I think that people who befriend their anxiety tend to have more or less a love-hate relationship with it, <laughs> where they hate it, but it's the one thing that keeps them safe. I think you're probably spot on. I'm obviously not a therapist, but the people that I have noticed with anxiety in my life, when they are taking care of themselves and have, I don't know, I don't want to say good control over their anxiety, but kind of that control and that that I'm in charge, the anxiety is not in charge today. It's funny to see how differently they react on the days where they know they're really anxious and they know the anxiety is controlling them, but there's nothing they can really do about it in the moment. They hate that part. They're like, this is so annoying, but today's just a day that I'm going to be anxious. That's how it's going to be. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it becomes when you get to that point, and hopefully you do have more days than not where you are in control and you don't feel like anxiety runs your life. But yes, sometimes something is just going to activate that anxiety. And yeah, exactly. You're like, well, this is the day. Anxiety is just going to be a part of it. And I can learn to to at least peacefully reside with my anxiety to some extent. <laughs> yeah, another thing you said earlier that I really loved is you kind of took it and flipped anxiety on its head and said, how has this been helpful in my life? And obviously going back to that, you know, it's a lion chasing us. Well, that anxiety kept us alive. We didn't get eaten that day. Yes. But again, bringing it back into our day, like we don't really have that lion chasing us. How can it be helpful to people? So it's again, helpful in that sort of love hate relationship way where it's a terrible thing to deal with, but it does feel like the thing that's keeping you safe. When you've been in an environment where threats feel constant, anxiety keeps you on really high alert. It keeps you looking around and looking out for things and trying to guess the future. Something I talk about with clients is that we're pretty bad at guessing the future. And a lot of the things that we guess will happen, that our anxiety tells us will happen, are never going to happen and they don't come to fruition. But we really remember the things that we guessed would happen that do happen. And that's what often happens when somebody feels like anxiety has been a help to them, is that they're always anticipating the worst. And then on those occasions when the worst happens, they feel like I was ready for this because I was anxious. I was ready for this because either I knew it was going to happen or because I was looking for it. And if I wasn't looking out for those things, if I wasn't doing all this, if I wasn't overthinking, if I wasn't over planning, sort of anxious racing thought pattern, this could have gone so much worse. Things are already so hard. Imagine if I didn't have my anxiety. Imagine if I wasn't always on the lookout for something to go wrong. But anxiety lies to us because it doesn't actually make us more prepared. And in fact, living in that high alert makes it more likely that we're not ready in the moment because we're not meant to live in a state of anxiety and it starts to exhaust us and we miss things. And it's actually a safer state of being to be able to be content and to notice the moment and to not always be thinking about the future. But that's often the way that anxiety lies. And people will feel like it's it's the one thing keeping them from disaster. That is just, sorry, I'm my brain is kind of exploding right now. 
how you explained that, that your brain can always be on high alert and that the times that you guessed right when you ask yourself, what's the worst that can happen? And then that thing happened kind of is a, a reinforcement of, okay, my anxiety needs to stay. But more often than not, we'll be on that high alert. What's the worst that can happen? And then that thing doesn't happen. And that just little, that little reframe of like, wow, look, we were wrong. I imagine that could be so helpful for so many people just saying my anxiety was on high alert today and I thought everything was going to go wrong. And you get to the end of the day and you're like, man, nothing went wrong. That's kind of some evidence in the camp of maybe we don't need to be anxious all the time versus the other way around that is evidence in the other camp that said, well, everything went wrong. So we can expect that next time. So that's really playing into our brain's confirmation bias. The reason that everybody feels like they always get in the longest checkout line in the grocery store is because you believe that you do and you only remember the times that you do. So the times that you fly through that checkout line, your brain doesn't really record those things because your brain is looking to prove true the things that you believe are true. So when it comes to anxiety, if you're always on the lookout for something to go wrong and anything does, it's that confirmation bias that's proving it's true. So the answer to that is one, to be able to acknowledge how often, exactly like you said, that those things aren't actually playing out. This is such a small percentage of the time that you're even getting close to correctly guessing. Because what I'll talk to clients about is like, you imagined a thousand and one scenarios about what could go wrong, right? And only one thing went wrong. So a thousand of those were incorrect. Our brains are bad at predicting the future in that way. But the way that we play into confirmation bias in a healthy way is starting to wonder when things might go right. And so then your brain is on the lookout for what might go right or what might be okay. And that's how you start to reverse that thinking process. How do we kind of confirm the truth of our lives on a daily basis? That's something that's really helpful about therapy is that you're getting this outside perspective. The voice of anxiety can become so loud and create such an echo chamber of that confirmation bias that it's really helpful to be able to step outside that. And counseling is one of the ways that we do that. You're looking for things that help you to create some distance, that help you to ground yourself into the present moment so that you're not living in the past or in the future. You're looking to specifically seek out things to delight in and to start thinking about what could go well and start to really reset that confirmation bias to be looking for the good. It'll feel like silly, but even something like doing, you know, a gratitude journal where you're writing down like three things that went well that day. A lot of people don't enjoy that in the moment when they're living with anxiety because that's not where their brain was focused or it feels silly or it feels like not very much compared to what did go wrong. But what you're doing is you're resetting your brain to look for those things. You start having to think about what went well so that you can write those prompts at the end of the day. And those are some things that can be helpful. But really, it's a big deal to get outside of that perspective and have something help to ground you. I absolutely love the gratitude journal. It's a habit that I got into for like a year. And then I, I actually stopped doing it because I just got so, I was looking for things to put my gratitude journal, you know, it was like, okay, what's the biggest thing I can be grateful for today? So I noticed myself just looking before I, I got to my gratitude journal at the end of the day, I would look all day long for things to be grateful for. I started having to add, okay, I can't just limit myself to three things. I'm going to have to have five, six, 10, 
when I stopped doing it, I was, I had like 30 or 40 things that I was grateful for that day. And I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to appreciate in the moment when I'm grateful for something. So I don't have to come and write it down at the end of every day. Yeah. That's the secret though. You want it gratitude journaling, which is really just that you're trying to reset your mind. That's so great. <laughs> I, I loved it. I still, I still recommend it to my clients. I do it in a little bit different way because sometimes gratitude is hard. Um, so I do accomplishments is where I start. Oh, that's good. Say, you know, what that's you a little bit more concrete. Today? Yeah. Like, yeah. did you brush your teeth? Excellent work. Put that down in your journal. What are some of the other tools, you know, we've got look for the good in your life and kind of have that gratitude journal. What are some other tools we can use to overcome our anxieties? Grounding techniques are a big one. One that I like, well, two different ones. Any sort of breathing practice that's allowing you to breathe out longer than you breathe in is going to force your nervous system to go into a state of calm. So that can help with dealing with anxiety in the moment. A lot of my students, this is actually a kid's exercise, but I used to work at a university and college kids and grad students love it too. But hand breathing, where you trace your hand and you you hold out your hand and you use a finger to move up your finger and you're breathing in and then you're moving down your finger and breathing out, up the next finger, breathing in, down the finger, breathing out, just making sure that you're breathing out longer than you're breathing in. But there's something very soothing about kind of that touch as well that can be a good one. I like the 333 technique, um, which is looking for three things you can see, three things you can feel, and three things you can hear. You want to get really in detail with it. So it's not just listing out those things, but it's really taking a moment to feel the way your seat feels underneath you and to really feel the clothing on your body and to really differentiate what's the sound that's nearby, how, what's the furthest sound you can hear. All of those things are gonna bring you into the, the present. There are a lot of great YouTube videos for that as well, if it helps you to have an outside thing, some like mindfulness activities. So those are good in the moment things. What it's probably going to take though, long-term to deal with anxiety, apart from creating those kind of daily practices, is getting to explore what's at the root. Because again, the way that our brain works is that when we've been in an anxiety-inducing situation, our amygdala only needs one little bit of that situation to bring up the whole situation. That's kind of getting into a trauma topic, but really what's happening is that if you go through some lion in the bush, <laughs> you only need to hear the lion. You don't need to also see it and smell it. That's ineffective. So you only need one sensory thing to remind you of that moment. Getting to really dig in with somebody and explore what caused that initial root of the anxiety can start to untangle that so that your brain no longer goes into that kind of trauma anxious response when it's presented with the same information. Thank you again for these awesome tools. Just looking for the good gratitude journaling, grounding, uh, hand breathing, the three, 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 see three things, feel three things and hear three things. And then really getting into the root cause of what's causing this. I feel like I have a, a roadmap. If I were somebody who had anxiety, who had never been introduced to any of these tools, I feel like I have a starting place to kind of attack that. I thought that was really interesting that with that lion analogy, that the anxiety can be brought back up with just one sense. 
And I've never heard that before, but that makes complete sense. And that's important because a lot of people won't recognize, it'll make it that much harder to trace it back to that root cause. Yeah, it doesn't need to be exactly the same situation. Just anything that reminds you of that, that engages any of those senses because our amygdala is so sensitive. And yeah, it can make it really tricky to, to figure out what's happening. But if you start having anxiety at random moments, probably it's not a random moment, but your amygdala is picking up on just one of those things and bringing you back to that place. And it's very adaptive. Again, it doesn't help if you have to also see the lion and, you know, touch the lion and smell the lion (laughs) before you know to run. Um, You want to just be able to base it off of one of those senses. Man, aren't humans incredible? We are so incredible. I love it. (laughs) The fact that we came up with that system thousands of years ago to figure out fear and how to stay alive. And then we got to this point where we're just like, yeah, we can stay alive pretty darn easy but that system is still there trying to keep us safe. Oh, absolutely. And that's another thing that I share a lot too, is that our world is so different so recently that the way that our brains develop is so slow. Our brain development occurs very slowly over time for good reason, but our brains are not existing like in this present world, essentially. So we really have to go back to that biological route to understand why we function the way we function and why our world isn't really set up well for the way that our slow growing brains work. Yeah. And it's incredible that we've figured that out enough that we can go see a therapist and get help with our anxieties. Yes, absolutely. So how long, let's just say we've got three clients, somebody with a little trauma, somebody with, these are all, you know, traumas from maybe their childhood, somebody with a little trauma, somebody with like a medium sized trauma and somebody with a bigger trauma. How long would each of those people generally stay in therapy to get help from that? I know everybody's super different, but is there like a trend at all? Sure. I really bother um, my husband who I do a podcast with because every time he asks me a question like this, I say it depends. (laughs) And it really does. But that's a that's a good point in that if you have a single incident trauma, so for instance, if I'm dealing with a, a client who has never had trauma before, who's never, who generally feels pretty happy, feels pretty settled, felt supported growing up, feels pretty capable in life, but let's say they had an incident like a car accident and now they're struggling with driving. That sort of thing I have seen go very quickly through therapy, that within a couple of weeks, we're in a very different place. Now, is there ever going to be a situation that brings that up again? Maybe, maybe the next time this person is driving and has a near car accident, they feel like they're having some resurgence of those things. But in general, pretty short time frame to be able to deal with sort of one incident thing. That might not be true for certain incidents. I used to work as a sexual assault victim advocate. Of course, when we're getting into something like that, that sort of thing can really change the way that the world feels. So that might be a little bit longer term. But again, single incident is going to be different because we've learned that the world is safe and we have that to fall back on. When you've had a lifetime of this stuff happening, counseling is going to take a good bit longer. But I also encourage people that you get to be the boss in counseling, you get to be in control. So I don't want somebody hearing this who's like, oh my gosh, might have a lot of this. (laughs) This might be forever. You're allowed to decide when you feel ready to leave counseling. So if you get started with a therapist, 
and you go for a little bit and you're like, wow, life feels easier and more functional. Maybe we're a couple months in or six months in and you're like, okay, I'm not, I'm where I want to be for now. That's allowed. You can decide to take a break. You can decide to stop. You could see somebody different down the road, but you're in control and more than being able to pick a firm end date for counseling, counseling is, is beneficial as long as you say that it is. And if you get to a point where you're like, you know, I've learned the things I want to learn for now, and now I want to focus on other things. Now I want to, you know, just enjoy my relationships, or maybe I want to, you know, go explore something new. That's okay. So you're not stuck in therapy forever because you steer the ship at the end of the day. <laughs> it's up to you. I think that's a great response. Um, sometimes, you know, if it's a single event, you might only need a few sessions here or there. But yes, it does depend. The reason I asked that question, I know it's a, an interesting question to ask because everybody's so different, is I want to give people a sense of reality of what it looks like to go through and work with a therapist. If you'd say, well, I'm average, you know, I'm just, I had a, an okay childhood. Maybe there was a couple things in my childhood that I haven't gotten over yet. You know, am I going to be in therapy for a month, three months or 10 years? So in that kind of, you know, scale, that person's probably at what, a three to six months maybe before. And it is different. I, yes, absolutely. Okay. So I think that as much as it's, it's hard to tell, it depends on the person. It's fair that if you've never been to therapy before, you don't know what to expect. So if you're going in for something that's single incident, yeah, I would see people for like four to eight weeks, maybe not every week, maybe every other week for something like that probably pretty short term. By the time you get past intake and you've spent a session or two talking about the thing, you're probably getting pretty close to building up that toolbox. You already have such a firm foundation. I've seen for something that maybe you're labeling as like medium, a lot of change maybe over like six months. And that even for really deeper stuff, people were feeling like a whole different person after like eight months to a, to a year. But again, it's so, it's so, so different. So if you're listening, don't feel locked into those things, but you're going to notice huge changes kind of over that time period. Yeah. I, the reason I've, I've had a few friends go to therapy and they're like, yeah, eight weeks in, I felt like a completely different person. And some of them are like, man, two weeks in, I got a ton of tools and a ton of knowledge and I kind of wanted to stop going, but I was so happy. I kept going for another 10, 12 weeks because I learned so much more. The momentum started and just grew and grew and grew. Now they're completely different people six months down the road. Yeah, I love that. absolutely. I would really say, I think that that's an excellent point. I think that unless it's for something that's just so acute and so specific, it is really helpful because it takes time for a therapist to learn you. If you think about any relationship in your life, like that therapist might be an expert in anxiety or depression or trauma, but you're the expert in you. And that not only takes some time to uncover, it's going to take time to, to build that level of like comfort and rapport. It's going to take time to start identifying patterns in your life. So a lot of, of the amazing thing that starts to happen around, say, like six months or past that when we are really into it is that you might not be noticing patterns in your life, but at that point as a therapist, I've known you for long enough that when you're talking about just, oh, what occurred this week, 
we are really starting to get in and get a lot of useful information out of that. I see clients at that point, not only starting to, you know, just have some of that initial feel better change, but they are noticing things. They are starting to take control. They're starting to talk about something from this week and go, oh my gosh, that's that same thing we were talking about in month two. That here this thing is again. And now I get to see it from this whole different perspective. And having time to build up that pattern recognition is is huge. That makes an amazing difference. So yes, you're going to start feeling better early on if you have the ability to, if you have access to therapy for longer than that the change over the course of more time is huge. It's completely different than just those those first couple weeks or months. And when should someone seek out a therapist? Therapy is a tough thing because it really can be so difficult to find therapy that's accessible to you. Obviously, a lot of people are able to go through insurance and there's you know low cost, more affordable counseling. But if you are curious about therapy, I highly recommend it. I think that if you get in and in that first session or two you feel comfortable with the person it's really the most important thing is the relationship that you just feel like somebody you can talk to and trust but if you're curious about it I recommend it for anybody if you are noticing that there are things preventing you from doing what you would like to do in life if you are noticing that you don't have some of the same enjoyment and things that you used to do if you're noticing that your relationships aren't working out, if you're noticing that you feel any sort of lingering or long-term sense of something not being as it could or should be, those are really good signs that it's definitely time to seek somebody out. You don't have to wait for things to get awful. Something that I talk about too is if you have, you know, whether you have like a shattered bone or a sprained ankle, both of those things still need medical attention. It doesn't matter if it's just a sprain, you still need some sort of support so that you're not causing a more long-term injury. And the same thing is true. If you're starting to notice that discomfort, if you're starting to notice that things don't feel as they ought to, that's a good time to go get essentially like preventative care. It's a good time to go talk to somebody because living with that long-term causes a lot of issues and just like we were talking about with anxiety, we're not meant to live in that state long-term. It's really rough on our body, on our system, and it's exhausting. That sounds, you know, kind of very similar to my personal thing. I tell people that I teach people how to get over their cell phone addictions. And they say, well, when should I come talk to you? Like, when do I need your help? And I always say, well, are you using your phone or is your phone using you? There's that sense of control, I think, that when people start to feel out of control, that's when they probably should go get some help from an outside third party. So I think that what you said is kind of fits right in with that, where if you feel like maybe your anxiety is starting to control you a little bit more than you like, yeah, or you have that sense of control is, is going somewhere other than you, that's a great time to seek out the therapy. Yeah, I think that if you are, you know, in your case, if you're curious about your cell phone use, if you're curious if this thing might be starting to take over more of your life than you want it to, that's a great time to start talking to somebody. But definitely, if you get to the point where you feel like this thing is controlling you instead of you controlling it, if your anxiety is running your life, if it keeps you from doing the things that you'd like to do, um, or 
pushes you into doing things that you don't want to do. We all need a sense of control. The first thing we do as babies is we like push something over <laughs> to, to feel our sense of power in the world. We look at our parents to call them over. We cry to summon somebody. Like we need to be acting on our world as humans. It's, a, it's the most human part of us. And when you start to lose that sense of control, other things are going to very quickly start to feel out of control as well. So if you're noticing that something else is running your life, your anxiety, your depression, your addiction, whatever it is, that's a great, a great signal to go get some support. Ash, this conversation has been absolutely wonderful. I'm so grateful that you were able to come on today. I'm so glad we got to do this. This has been lovely. Where can people find you? So if you're looking for therapy in North Carolina, my website is ashtreecounselingcenter.com or you can find me on Instagram at therapy with underscore ash. Awesome. And do you have a podcast as well? Yes, I do. We have a podcast called I Married Your Therapist where my husband and I talk about mental health. And I have listened to a couple of those episodes and have absolutely loved them. So huge shout out for that podcast. Um, Go listen to it. Thanks again to Ash for the words of wisdom about anxiety. Seriously, go check out her podcast, I Married Your Therapist. And thanks to the sponsor of this podcast, Level 10 Life Coach. To learn more about their 15-day digital detox, visit level10lifecoach.com. The biggest thanks of all goes out to our listeners. Thanks for joining the journey and learning how to be a human being.